Welcome, screensavers. I'm Michael Gallant. I'm Matt Sturdivant. I'm Tyler Sitkus. And together we host the Silver Screen Savers podcast. So happy to have you guys with us. Today it's a little bit of a different episode, but a very fun one. We're doing a fall movie medley. There's a lot of movies coming out every week, even more so as we get further into Oscar season. And we've watched a lot. We haven't done a weekly watch list in a while. I didn't even get to watch everything I wanted to. So we're just going to do a giant weekly watch list this week. One of my favorite kinds of episodes. Just first, I just wanted to say a rest in peace to Irene Cara, an amazing singer and actress. Did some of the best movie songs ever. Fame won an Academy Award for What a Feeling from Flashdance over Over You, which is from Tender Mercies, another movie song I love. If you guys listened to our Deepwater episode, which you should, where we talked about Adrian Lyne, you know that I'm in love with Flashdance, and you know that when the opening notes of What a Feeling play in the beginning of that movie, it's enough to bring me to tears, and the movie has barely started yet. So uh, rest in peace. We're going to start it off with Matt. What is something that you've watched over the last few weeks? So one of the things I watched over the last couple of weeks, I went and saw She Said, the film about the New York Times reporters who basically outed Harvey Weinstein and broke that whole case. Um, I thought there were some good performances by the two leads, Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan. Um, It was kind of a tough to watch because of the subject matter, because Harvey Weinstein was such a piece of crap. But I think it was an intriguing enough story what I what I gotta say though is ultimately I wasn't blown away by the movie itself. I thought the presentation wasn't the most captivating or compelling. Which with the subject matter, I don't expect a bunch of Michael Bay explosions or flares or you know I don't want it to have so much extra added into it that it feels kind of disingenuous or making light of a very serious situation. Mm-hmm. but I found myself kind of in and out of the story at times. And it's a long movie. I think it was over two hours. At least it felt like it was. I It's just not something I see myself revisiting. I'm glad I saw it, but I wasn't really blown away by it either. Yeah, I wish I could speak on this one. I haven't seen it yet. I'm excited to see it. I have read the book. It was done by Jody Cantor and Megan Tuhi, who were the reporters uh, who wrote these stories. So uh, I'm excited to see it. I, I do think that is a requirement this year if you're a major movie, is that you have to be over 120 minutes for some reason. They're all like two and a half <laughs> hours, and I'm like, what is going on? That means it's good because it's long. Like some, you know, it's like, <laughs> and I'm not saying this about she said, do you know whenever a musician does like a 10 minute song, somebody always has to call it a masterpiece because it's 10 minutes long. But the genius couldn't be contained at three mere minutes. Yeah. No, it's fine. I'm fine with it for some of them. We're going to talk about a lot more of those movies, but I- I'm looking forward to watching she said, Tyler, what do you got? So, Mike, you're going to enjoy this. I saw two, count them, two Alice and Janie movies. <laughs> all right, all right, lover. <laughs> I'm going to start with the older one first, the better one of the two, and that was Lou. 
And this was just a generic action movie, but it was incredible because it was a generic action movie with Alice and Janie acting like goddamn John Wick. Yeah. <laughs> bizarre, bizarre thing. This this has to be like the peak of like the John Wick trend, especially like the you know like you're getting Netflix greenlights one of these every day with a different actress where like they go badass. Alice and Janie is a hilarious choice. <laughs> I, <laughs> she, she's I, I watched so like out half of, of that. Yeah, it's it like the movie itself is so like generic. It's nothing to like write home about. But the fact that you get to see Alice and Janie kicking ass, <laughs> badass. Like, I'm swearing. I got it. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> you broke the swear seal. Hell yeah. But no, just just weirdly generic action movie. But it's got Alice and Janie, and that's really all I can say about it. <laughs> that's a that's a Netflix one, right? It is a Netflix one, yes. Make that the tagline. Really badass movie with Alice and Janie. I watched Ava, I think it was, the Jessica Chastain, one of my favorite performers in Chastain, and that movie was like one of the worst I had seen of that year. So I I don't know. I some of these action ones are not working out. Everything is like John Wick with a train, John Wick with a boat. Now it's John Wick, but Alice and Janie. Sorry, <laughs> I just had to add that. And what's the other movie you watched of hers? The the worst one. What was worse? The worst one I watched, I believe this is a Prime exclusive, and it's called The People We Hate at the Wedding. Oh, how was that? That was atrociously bad. And it's even worse when you're watching it with your girlfriend and her mom. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Because, like, one of the scenes is, like, uh, one of the storylines is two men wanting to and not wanting to engage in a threesome with a much older man. That's just a bizarre movie. The the whole movie's bizarre, but just an awful comedy. The Kristen Bell, Allison Janney, I don't remember who the rest of the people are, but the story was just terrible. It's got a... Cute ending, you know, it's fine, but oh my god, it is a slog of like an hour and like 40 minutes of a movie. Yeah, that was like I Want You Back, which was another Prime exclusive, like romantic comedy, I guess. I, another yeah. one that I did not enjoy from this year, so. It, I think I, I like chuckled once during this movie, so it got me one good chuckle. Otherwise, oh my god, it was awful. Hmm. I'm going to do a couple. I'm going to do a, well, I'm just going to tell you. The first one is The Good Nurse. Have either of you heard of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's part of the Good Wife universe, right? It's part of the <laughs> yes, Good Wife universe. I prefer the bad universe, as you know, but this was The Good News. The Good Nurse. <laughs> it's a Netflix movie with one of my favorites, Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne, based on a true crime book by Charles Graber, which I think I mentioned it on the show before, but if I haven't, I don't always love true crime or I don't love every true crime product, but I read this book earlier this year. I was blown away by this thing. Love the book. It's really terrifying and atmospheric. It says a lot about medical system and liabilities and hospitals and why certain things that should happen don't happen. Charles Colin, which is it about, is a real nurse who spiked IV bags and killed possibly hundreds of patients like over years. He kept getting jobs at hospitals after being fired from previous ones. Hospitals were trying to cover up their liabilities, right? Not admitting of wrongdoing, all this kind of bureaucratic stuff that kept him getting jobs, which led to more patient deaths. The movie is directed by Tobias Lindholm, who is the partner of Thomas Finterberg, like a creative partner. 
Thomas Vinterberg, the Danish filmmaker who made Another Round and co-wrote that movie with Lindholm, they've made some really cool stuff together. And this movie was written by Christy Wilson Cairns, who did 1917, and she was the co-writer of Last Night in Soho. This movie is not very good at all. It's not bad. It's just very, like, TV drama. Like, it's a one-hour TV procedural drama. It doesn't feel like a searing medical thriller, especially, like, the level of crime and despicable disgustingness that was done here. It's just kind of like, I don't know. It's, it's kind of throwaway. The adaptation is where I think the flaws live. In a book, of course, you have more space to explore all aspects of a topic, and they do in the book. Again, I recommend that. The book spends a lot of time focusing on Charles, his personal life, his time at work. You also learn about Amy Lauren, who's the woman who worked with him and befriended him and was vital in taking him down eventually. The movie just focuses on her. She's the protagonist, and you learn about Charles's crimes as she does. You never see him spiking an IV bag, which I thought was a problem because there was no tension to the movie at all. In another version of the movie... Patients would be dying, you wouldn't know the cause, and it'd be like a mystery. But if you know a single thing about this movie before you watch it, you know that it's Charles doing it. So, like, there's no tension. I mean, there are stakes, but there's no tension to it. Yeah, but you're supposed to believe he's a good nurse, so when, yeah. when it ultimately <laughs> shocks you, like, wait, I thought he was a good nurse. But the title makes it think that he's good. <laughs> yeah, it's... It does a decent job of portraying medical untrustworthiness and heinousness surrounding the fact that this guy worked for so many places after being fired. You know, the movie is not good. It's, again, it's not terrible. I just thought it was a massive opportunity missed because this book, I repeat, is really, really dramatic and awesome. So just just read the book. I also Mike, saw... Real yes. quick. So you saw two Jessica Chastain movies that were both disappointed you, correct? I saw Ava like a while ago, but yeah. Okay, but is this is has Jessica Chastain made a good movie since the three five five? Um, while one of you are talking, I'm gonna look at her filmography and see. <laughs> since the three five five, no, unless I'm forgetting something from this year. So the three five five ruined her career. She's not recovering. No. I think she makes an appearance in Armageddon Time, but I have not seen that yet either. So I'll report back with that. Uh, going from <laughs> Netflix throwaway to major Oscar contender, I saw Tar, finally. I was the only person in my theater for Tar. I was sitting in the back because I like don't like people around me. Uh, shout out to... Well, never mind. And the man in the theater told me to sit... <laughs> No, no, I'm just not gonna. You can't just set us up like that and then not deliver. No, it's not. What? Yeah, I, I want to know. Just let us know. <laughs> I'll let you guys know later. But the man in the theater, he's like, "No, you have to sit in the middle. The sound is really great for this." And so I'm like, "Okay, all right, this is gonna be a movie. Let me set it up." Tar is about a and a really accomplished orchestra conductor, Lydia Tar, who's played by Kate Blanchett, who's at the top of her field, but. We slowly learn of past abuses of power as we watch her start to do some of the same things, some of the same abuses in her current position in Berlin. And those transgressions threaten to take away the entire life, the entire career that she has built up. It was written and directed by Todd Field, who had previously made In the Bedroom, Little Children. Both acclaim this is his first movie in a really long time. It's going to be a major awards contender. I'm sure we're going to be talking about it later in the season. I have to be of two minds about this movie. 
my movie watcher brain, just like my, you know, just watching experience. I didn't like this movie very much at all. And I was kind of surprised by that, right? The guy set me up. He's like, this is going to be a hell of a time. (laughs) And then it was not. It's so long. I often like these kinds of stories. This one did not do it for me, and it's two and a half hours. However, my critical side, this script is incredibly intricate. It's well drawn out. It's excellent material for analysis. The slow reveal of the aspects of Lydia's life, the construction, the breakdown, it's so carefully and well done. I was very impressed by that. There are issues. What can we forgive a public figure for? Where is the line where we say we can't see this person anymore, right? What is a crime that is so bad committed or crimes, plural, where we say, you know, this person is done with our public life. We can't see him anymore. Can we? They're canceled. Yes, they're canceled. Like uh, like Leatherface. (laughs) (laughs) Once a person is canceled, like like you know who, can we still accept the person's art? How much is a person allowed to invent themselves without it being a crime, right? We see that Lydia has fabricated some aspects of her life, right? Should that be counted against her? We see the subtle ways that she wields her influence. She has to move people around like pieces on a board game and a whole lot more stuff. This We should have an extended discussion about it. Which board game? Uh, sorry. Yeah, that one. Th- Because it's the most infuriating board game of all time. When your opponent draws a sorry card, you go, No! (laughs) Tell me I'm wrong. No, Jennifer Coolidge comes in and goes, Hashtag, sorry, not sorry. Yeah, I've been seeing that commercial every day. I'll say about Tar, and I'm almost done with Tar. Ultimately, I, I felt like there was something missing. It's about seeing this destructive figure being slowly taken down by her abuses of power. Maybe I just haven't thought enough about it, and it it just seemed more like an observation of the issue than a statement, which is fine. If that was the intention, I think that's really great. And again, it's a really excellent script. It's very well filmed. All the acting is wonderful. At certain points, I felt like I was just watching the last five years of the news. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, I, I saw this happen to real people like many times over, I, I just, I wasn't into watching it in a movie, if you know what I mean. So I, maybe it was just the timing. Maybe it was just this. I just, I was not a massive fan, but I've, I like thinking about it, if that makes sense. All right, Matt, we're going to go back to you. You know, I'm so glad you talked about such a art house, such a sophisticated film as mm-hmm. Tar leading into my next one, because is this is a movie. This is a B-movie. It didn't come out this year, but it was a Tubi find, which I know we've said it on the show before, folks. If you don't have Tubi, get on Tubi. Love Tubi. Um, So this one came out in, I want to say 1987 or 88. And that's Maniac Cop. Have either of you two seen Maniac Cop before? I haven't seen Maniac Cop. I've seen parts of it on TV, but I've never seen the full thing. (laughs) It is pure B-movie bliss. It's got our boy Tom Atkins. Dan the Man Chalice. Dan the Man Chalice. And Ash Williams himself, Bruce Campbell. Oh, cool. They really don't share a lot of screen time, but they're both pretty pretty good for what they are. Um, the short synopsis 
of <laughs> the the short synopsis of this movie is quote a killer dressed in a police uniform begins murdering innocent people on the streets of nyc first of all it's weird watching a movie like this in 2022 <laughs> <laughs> like i'm not even trying i'm i'm like not to make a joke out of it but it's just it's weird truth be told though it's a fun just b-movie rob robert zadar as the maniac cop well his presence is is just fantastic he he nails the role quite well um it's just a fun turn your brain off and just watch this absurd crazy b movie on like a sunday afternoon it's it's fun it's free on tubi all right tyler what do you got next i got this is a great film memory which is from earlier this year and is a prime exclusive i believe as well uh a liam neeson thriller which (laughs) so i i I watched this with my girlfriend's mom i will (laughs) it's another one but this it takes the Liam Neeson, you know, Liam Neeson the the thing for Liam Neeson now is to just give him the same character but now he has a different job. Like, oh, now he's he's fighting terrorists on a plane. Now he's like a train conductor, now he's an ice road trucker. That's that's the thing. This one No, this one is the best idea that anyone's had for a Liam Neeson film because they make him an assassin, which he's already played. And they I think they realize that like we got to give it a twist. What if he was an assassin? Who had Alzheimer's? <laughs> That's right. That is that is ge- genuinely this movie, and this apparently this is based on a Belgian movie, which I looked up just to see how this Belgian movie was rating. It's got like an eighty percent Rotten Tomatoes, so I'm assuming they handled this much better. This movie uses Alzheimer's as a random plot device <laughs> just to like foil Liam Neeson's plans. At ra- like it, it won't play into effect for half the movie, and then it shows up just to be like, oh darn. Did, did you forget that he's and then like he has his memory is fine in the next scene it is the most inconsistent plot device and it is so badly used yes <laughs> now that bruce willis is retired and nicholas cage is kind of doing a re, like a renaissance of his career i think liam neeson is the new guy that like will just take any role this movie was so dumb like it literally every guy pierce was in this and he's supposed to be an fbi officer i don't know why they made him look like, he hadn't showered in, like, three weeks. He just looks gross, and he's supposed to be, like, the good guy in the film. I don't really understand why they made him so sleazy-looking. Like, What's up with Guy Pierce? What happened, man? That, that's just Guy Pierce. That's just what he looks like. <laughs> like, Guy Pierce, you gotta shower for those roles. He's like, no. <laughs> the last, like, three movies I've seen with Guy Pierce in it, including Mare of Easttown, which was a series, he looked like... I assume, like you're describing. So, you sure that's not just how he looks? It could be just Guy Pierce's looks now. I, I won't I won't say it's not. But it literally... So, it's, it's your generic revenge story. You know, the people who hired him, made him... Asked him to do a bad thing, and he won't do that bad thing. So, he's out to get the people that, like, made him do the bad thing. Or made him start to do the bad thing. And then just Alzheimer's pops up at random. Like... I'm just gonna I'm just gonna I'm gonna spoil this movie just because I have to explain this okay if you want to see memory stop listening and go watch memory but so the first time it pops up 
is he's going sent to kill this little girl who I, I forget why, who knows? Um, and he doesn't do it, but then he wakes up the next day and the little girl's dead. And he's like, he's like the woman he's with. He's like, did I, did I leave this room? Did I leave this room? And he's like shaking her and she's like, no, you were here all night. And he's like, no, I must've left the room. He's like, no, it turns out another assassin did it. So he goes after them. His memory's fine now. Cause he remembers everything. Then when he's about to kill the final guy, you realize he forgot to put his gun back together correctly. So the gun doesn't go off and he gets captured. And then, in non-Liam Neeson fashion, he dies. He gets killed in like three quarters oh, of the way through this movie. <laughs> man, who does he think he is? Sean Bean? You know what they should then, have done? Um, go ahead and finish explaining. So first, before he dies, he, he has this monologue that he gives to Guy Pierce, the FBI officer. And he's like, Barry... And he's like, Barry, that's spelled B-E-R-Y, right? He's like, no, it's spelled B-E-R-Y. And the guy, like, Guy Pierce is just confused, and he gets out and gets shot. <laughs> and then it turns out Barry, B-E-R-Y, was where he left the evidence in a bakery sign that the A-K fell off. <laughs> and I was, the guy, he's like, oh, Barry, B-E-R-Y. <laughs> it's in the sign. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is stupid. That's like all the Alzheimer's effects in the movie. <laughs> So it had no purpose to the plot. You know what they should have done was that he should have had memory lapses where he thought that he was in another movie, so he just starts playing his other roles. <laughs> so he's in the middle of this, and then all of a sudden he's Qui-Gon. And then he's, he's, <laughs> he's doing the voice of Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> then he's in Taken. That would have been better. It would have been much better. Also, let's not forget that Jessica Chastain won an Oscar after starring in the 355. For what? For the eyes of Tammy Faye that you and I saw. That was after the 355? No, she she won won it after. after. Oh, she won it after. Yeah, but that doesn't count. Who cares? That movie, that rule came before. No, she got the I said after. Remember that you, me, and an old guy in the theater late at night, and he was like laughing at the worst things. Yeah, he just laughed at bad things, like just the presence of. I won't say. Uh, I'm gonna move on to another Oscar contender, The Banshees of Inishirin. This is about the residents of an island off the coast of Ireland. Centers on two friends. One of them ends their friendship one day very suddenly. The other friend doesn't understand why and seeks to reconcile, which leads to increasingly intense repercussions for both of them. This is written and directed by Martin McDonough, reuniting with his In Bruges stars, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. They are both incredible in this. This is one of the best movies of the year. It's hilarious. It's very thought-provoking about what is the best way to spend your time on the earth, right? Leaving something that will last or having fun every day, relaxing experiences? Is there an in-between? Are you going to feel good about the way you spent your block of life? And what do people do who are close with each other, but their views no longer align? Really awesome movie. Carrie Condon and Barry Keoghan are also brilliant in this. I don't actually want to say too much about it until we have a chance for an extended discussion, but when it comes to play near you, the listener, you have to see it. It's so good. I love this. I also watched All Quiet on the Western Front, the 2022 version. It's based on the novel by Eric Maria Remarque, which I would say is one of the Western world's most prominent books. It's about young German soldiers on the front lines in World War I. 
is directed by Edward Berger, written by him, Ian Stokel, and Leslie Patterson. This is Germany's submission to the Academy for International Feature. This movie is well done. I didn't love it. It just feels like a lot of what we've seen before from these kinds of movies. Young soldiers are hoping to fight for the motherland, and then they learn that war is unspeakably horrible. We've seen this before in movies. Now, having said that, just because we've seen things before, people have experienced things before, doesn't mean that it's less impactful to them or meaningful to them when we hear similar stories. I, I just found it kind of hard to connect this with this one. There are some individual moments that captivated me. Not most of it. It does highlight, you know, the circular nature of violence, how soldiers don't want to be killing each other. But if you find yourself in the trenches with someone who's in the exact same situation as you are, you have to fight because the other guy will kill you because he's scared that you'll kill him and that whole thing. Sometimes what I want from war movies, and I'm... War movie is not my favorite genre. Are you guys high on war movies? I like a good war movie. When it's done right, for sure. Yeah, when it's anything done right is good for me, but it's not It's not my go-to. What I do want from them sometimes is not an explanation, but maybe a little history or a little insight into why does war happen? Why does it continue to go on? I'd say this movie does a decent job of trying to explain. We get a couple of diplomat characters who are either trying to stop the war or keep it going for certain reasons. We see various complications, unnecessary delays that take place where human folly, human indecision leads to continuation of horrific violence. So I, this movie is very well done. There are a lot of people who are liking it more than I do. It's on Netflix, so if you're interested in that, definitely check it out. If you're a war movie fan... I think you will definitely enjoy this. It's, it's very, very well done. Uh, Matt, back to you. Well, my favorite type of war movie is the one where Zac Efron brings a bunch of PBRs across the ocean to Vietnam. Oh, uh, yeah, check out our The Greatest Beer Run Ever episode. Would not have wanted to be one of those beers. Just saying. Um, so my next one I know all of us have seen... I'm going to talk about The Menu. It's awesome. Uh, absolutely one of my top ten movies of the year. I, I can tell this one's going to stick it. I don't know exactly which, if it's going to be top half or bottom half, but it's it's up there. For those of you who haven't seen the trailer or don't know about it yet, it's it's about a group of rich people that pay for this all-inclusive, exclusive meal service on a secluded island at this really fancy restaurant but lo and behold something is amiss it's got Anya Taylor-Joy and Nicholas Holt as basic like the two leads really although I'd be willing to argue Rafe Fiennes as the head chef commands the screen as as well as I've ever seen him he does a great job mm -hmm. i thought it was clever i thought it was witty it was very like a dark satire like dark humor which i think if you go and watch the trailer it does a little bit of a disservice to the film that you get because it's marketed it's almost a 24 level of mismarketing i feel like maybe not quite that much but it's really marketed in more as like a horror thriller movie where it's more of like a dark comedy with horror elements. Mm 
Yeah. Um, all that said, uh, I, I just really enjoyed it. Um, there's many creative twists. There's some cool environmental gags, some sort of commentary on, on classes, the different social classes and, um, treatment of service workers, the, you know, rich people basically being unappreciative or out of touch. Um, I really can't go into a whole lot of it without giving details, but it's just very cleverly made and it's very darkly funny. I pretty much loved everything about it. The only gripe I could possibly think of, which we kind of, I, I actually was, uh, <clears throat> I was actually lucky enough to be a guest over on So Wizard Podcast to give a more full review of this movie than I'm giving now. So go check that out if you're curious. Um, the only gripe that I was able to find, which I had to find one for that guest spot, is that the supporting cast did feel kind of like caricatures of people rather than real people. I think for what the movie was trying to say, that was fine. But, I mean, you had some solid supporting cast, too. You had John Leguizamo. You had, um, like I said, Nicholas Holt. And oh, I forgot the name of the lady. She was an Ozark. She was the food critic in the menu. Hang on. Keep going. I'll get it. Uh, just, oh, Hong Chow. I, I, I don't know how I didn't mention Hong Chow yet. She was absolutely brilliant. She was well-timed, well-acted. She was hilarious. I loved Hong Chow in this. Um, I feel like McTeer. I'm... Janet McTeer. So, I mean, I feel like I'm hogging up all the time on the menu. I want to hear what you guys thought of it. I'm pretty sure we're all mostly in agreement on this, though. Tyler, what'd you think? Of the menu? Yes. I, I liked it a lot. I, I agree with a lot of what Matt said. I do have some issues with some plot points I didn't really understand, which I don't want to spoil. Um, but other than that, I mean, I thought it was a really f- a fun movie for what it was. I, I fun feels like a weird way to describe it, but it's one of those movies that kind of just like makes fun of the ultra rich. So I'm all for mm-hmm. that. Um, I do agree with what you said, Matt, about some of the characters being kind of characters, specifically the three finance guys for the company. Like I thought they were kind of lame and like they weren't that interesting, but I get why they were there. But really like this was a movie that like I genuinely laughed during it, especially when there was a scene that said like as the listed dish just said, Tyler's bullshit that, that I, I I sympathized. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, um, Two, two things I want to add that just absolutely made this theater experience for me. Um, well, the one thing that made the theater experience for me was the trailer for the movie Plane. Yeah, I didn't. I haven't even heard of this. <laughs> you didn't get that one? To, Did, I sent you the you trailer about though. it. That's right, yeah. that's right. Yeah, so a generic Gerard Butler action movie. Halfway through it goes the title card, The Crash. And... Tyler, I believe you were the one that was like, that's a terrible name for a movie. <laughs> how, how little I know. And then the trailer keeps going and finishes, and then it goes, plane. And I was like, oh, the crash is a better title. <laughs> like an airplane. And I guess realized I didn't really explain the plot other than generic action movie. But either way, yeah. Um, the other thing 
allegedly Leguizamo's character in this movie was based on Steven Seagal. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense, knowing what we know. Did did the the makers of Plane just inadvertently insult themselves with their own movie title? How is it? Ah, plane. plane. <laughs> well, I I was talking. I was saying in the theater. I'm like, I'd love to be in that boardroom where they're trying to decide a title, and the best they could come up with was Plane. Well, doesn't Disney already have planes, so they had to go singular? <laughs> oh, we can't step on that masterpiece, Planes. We gotta go without the S. But I yeah. just I, so I just want to say a shout out here. It's cutting into what I was saying. A shout out to that random guy at the Millbury, Massachusetts, eleven a.m. showing, who went and complained that we could not hear the movie. The movie was so quiet for the first like fifteen minutes. I couldn't understand a word anyone was saying. And he went, got up, and went, and then it started turned up. That, so that shout out to that guy. <laughs> and <laughs> but. Ray Fiennes, oh my god, I I just think he's he's one of my favorite actors. Like I he he really ate up his screen time in this. He was incredible. This movie was just genuinely funny, and it was one of those movies where you really didn't know where it was going next. Like it really threw you for a loop, and just a genuine surprise because like from the trailers, I wasn't that into this movie, and I'm shocked how much I really liked it. I'll just echo everything you guys said times 10. Love the movie. One of the most thrilling experiences I've had at the movies in a while. One of the funniest movies that I've seen in a while. Some of the darkest stuff would happen. And I would just like be trying to hold in my laughter because everyone else in the theater was silent. I I was so afraid like the whole time that they were going to drop the ball at some point or there there was going to be like a decline quality. And there was not. It just kept getting better. It was so awesome. Like you said, Hong Chao, John Leguizamo's in this. Uh, Amy Carrero is really good, too. I kind of wanted more from her character. Um, I I keep thinking about the Anya Taylor-Joy character. And, like, I kind of have some questions about her after we learn about who she is, if you know what I mean. Um, but that, that that's for another day. Uh, Tyler, what else you got? So I also saw All Quiet on the Western Front oh, you based did. on the novel Push by Sapphire. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. Imagine them having to read that all award season. <laughs> uh, no, but so as someone who did have to read the book for school, I thought this was a faithful adaptation. I do agree with a lot of what you said, Mike. I mean, how many movies have we seen where, like, war is bad is the message? And this is kind of a variation of it. I think we do know that. But I do think this is kind of a rare look into just how brutal World War One fighting was. I mean, that's kind of like a forgotten war. We did just get 1917, so maybe it's not that rare. But um, it was just kind of like a... Like, it's one of those movies that... I think it's a very well-done war movie. But you have to be, like, I'm someone who appreciates kind of the authenticity of, like, a war movie. Like, I feel like I'm watching a snapshot from it. I thought it was very faithful, um, aside from a few things that were anachronistic, but I won't get into that because no one cares. Uh, <laughs> but, like, it was definitely an interesting portrayal, but at the same time, it's a story that we've heard a million times of war is bad, war is brutal, look at what, look at these poor pe- poor kids that are sent to war. It's it, it's a story that's been told, so it's not like it, you need to see it because it's groundbreaking. It's a very well-done war movie. So I enjoyed it. I really liked it for what it was. But once again, it, it, you've seen the movie before. You've seen this movie if you've watched any war movie. 
Yeah, I, I, to, to your point about the battle stuff, one thing that I really loved was the scene where they like see tanks for the first time. And the way that they're displayed, it's like, it was literally like an alien invasion of you're like, what is this? <laughs> and then, you know, this, this like unparalleled destruction. So I will give it props for that. But I, I agree with everything you said. I've been watching season two of The White Lotus. We're a few episodes in at the time of this recording. Last year, we got season one, which is about the guests and staff at a resort in Hawaii. Various complications, hilarity, loved it so much. Look forward to it every week. This year, it's still the White Lotus chain, but it's in Sicily. It's awesome so far. Whole new set of guests besides Jennifer Coolidge and John Grease. They come back from season one. It's on HBO Max. Watch it. Even if you didn't see the first season, which you should, you can jump right into the second. I think I mentioned this uh, a while ago, but this was the one of the first shows, maybe since I was a kid, that like made me mega excited to wait for an episode to come out, right? Because with all the, you know, release dumping that we get from streaming, and not that I'm complaining about it, uh, it was nice to have that experience. I also watched Causeway. This is on Apple TV+. Plus. It's about an injured soldier. She returns to her hometown and tries to speed up her recovery so she can redeploy and escape her home. She befriends a local man, and the two begin, let's say, a mutual recovery from past trauma. It was directed by Lila Neubauer. This is a new director spotlight. She's not a new creative person. Uh, she's mainly been a very successful theater director, did a, a great adaptation, a revival of the Waverly Gallery, Kenneth Lonergan's play. It was written by, I think, first by Elizabeth Sanders and then later by Otessa Musfeg and Luke Goebel. It was previously known as Red, White, and Water, which I have to say, I just think is a way better title than Causeway. Am I right or wrong about that? Absolutely. <laughs> Causeway? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> did, did, didn't I, ring for me. I guess it depends on the context of the movie. I didn't see it, so I'm not sure. I did, and I can tell you Red, White, and Water, much better title. You can really feel the earnestness in this movie and the care that everyone has for these characters, the toils that they're going through. I'm going to give them props for their commitment to the realism, the naturalism. These people do feel like people you know. The dialogue feels real. I feel like I've had some of these you know, conversations or at least kind of the rhythm of the conversations. The realism was too much for me. I didn't really care for this movie. A lot of people are praising it and like I'm... I'm trying to convince myself that I understand the praise, but I, I really don't. It didn't move me very much. I feel like every year I discover a movie like this, a quiet drama that often centers on a relationship between a couple of people, right? Um, last year I did Lorelei, but with by Sabrina Doyle, which I still love. Go watch that. Um, Killing of Two Lovers, I love. Go watch that. But this, this one I, I just did not love. And... You know, it's there was a lack of energy, I think. It made for like a long hour and a half. This is a short movie that felt quite long. It's subtle and quiet, but perhaps a bit too subtle and quiet. Matt, you got something to say? Only only when you're done. All right, so I just got a little bit more. I Causeway, it just felt like the outline of a movie that I like better, if you know what I mean. You know, all the classic scenes are here. We have the quiet beginning... We have the bonding scenes where the characters explain their backstories. We get a long close-up of the protagonist as they explain the terrible thing that happened to them. It's all very competent. I just didn't care. It did not click for me. There was a missing ingredient. Um, I think Lila Neubauer is 
is a very good filmmaker. I just want to see her work with a script that interests me more. But, you know, again, not that it's about pleasing me, but Matt, go ahead. I am going to call your highly, widely, seemingly praised film that we just don't understand with my own that I know you will agree with me on. <laughs> Are you ready? You ready for this? Right, let's do it! Bones and all. <laughs> Gosh darn, that was a... You know what? I, I just don't get it. I, I, I don't... I don't no. get it. Um, my first line in my notes just said sucked. Um, I mean, if people like it, cool, good for them. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's a. I I I, would, I have to admit, I was intrigued by the whole idea of like a cannibal but romantic drama kind of. Like these two like, polar opposite kind of genre things kind of coming together. I figured it'd be a little, you know, something different. And it, I mean, it's different, but it's not intriguing or compelling or entertaining in the least. Mm-mm. The performances were all fine. Um, Taylor Russell was was good. Chalamet was fine. Riley, no, he wasn't. I didn't see it, but Timothy Chalamet wasn't fine. He was fine. Rylance, he started out, like, I, I thought his character was kind of quirky and weird and intriguing and, like, kind of creepy. And I, I thought, I, I liked it at first, but then it got old for me pretty quick. Um, what I will say, I do want to end on a little bit of a positive before I let you tear into this, Mike. Um, mm-hmm. I thought the cinematography, some of the set pieces were kind of cool. Um, some of the direction was kind of cool. You know, it's Luca Guadagnino. He's, he's got some pedigree behind him, but this, I just did not like the story on this at all. And I was not compelled or intrigued by this. I was flat out, frankly, bored through most of this. Like it was a chore to watch. And another long one, another very long one. Yeah. Yeah. It, It is interesting. You know, Luca Guadagnino, uh, Call Me By Your Name, I Am Love, Suspiria. This is written by David Kajganek, uh, pre- who previously wrote a couple of movies for Guadagnino. This is based on the book by Camille DeAngelis, which I've read. I'm holding it in my hands as we speak and showing it to you guys. So this book is good. I think the first part of the book, like the first section, I won't describe it, but the first section is like pitch perfect like wow i'm so impressed that she was able to accomplish this and then i the rest of the book kind of falls apart and i didn't really enjoy it that that much um and the movie i just didn't really enjoy at all i didn't mean to make a rude noise before but i'm so <laughs> my distaste was too strong at certain points i was thinking like wow i hate this like i i'm getting to that level i don't know if i would fully say that i hate this but it just no not for me it's overlong. It's dull. I don't believe the romance for one second. You know, Taylor Russell and Tim Chalamet, both good performers. Taylor Russell. Nope, nope, in, nope, nope. That's not true. Let me talk about Taylor first, okay. and then I will I will oblige. Taylor Russell, a couple of years ago, I went into a movie theater on a Thursday night and sat alone to watch Waves. And I had probably one of the best theater experiences of my life. And it was off. It was largely due to her. 
and everybody else in the movie. And so I I love her. I thought she was good in this. I didn't I, I didn't think the performances were anything great. Tim Chalamet, he was competent. I just I don't really get it. I just don't, which is fine. Just not my cup of tea. Tyler, really not your cup of tea. And I'm really with you, but you know, trying to to not be rude. This was a competently made movie. The sound work was done very well. I noticed that. I didn't even understand the mythology of the cannibalism. Like they were just kind of throwing things at the wall, and I'm like, uh, okay. Yeah, that was that was wildly inconsistent. Like they had this whole little campfire talk about there's before bones and all, and then there's after bones and all, yeah. and then like that meant nothing. Nothing changed. There was no payoff to that whatsoever. Um, we also got a cameo from David Gordon Green. Yeah, along with Michael Stuhlbarg. Yeah, our uh, champion of horror 2022, David Gordon Green. Yeah. <laughs> so t- towards the end of this movie, I won't say what's happening, but there's like a climactic moment... <laughs> And they start playing this song, and it sounded like it was Randy oh my God. at first. <laughs> yes. You and I just lost it, because <laughs> it sounded like someone was playing You've Got a Friend in Me to, like, this cannibal romance, and we're like, what is going on? Like, that, uh, oh, my lord. Yeah. I, I would, no, no thank you on that. Tyler, what do you got? I got... I finally this I saw a while ago, so don't like come at me and be like it's it's almost Christmas. Why are you seeing this movie? This is how long it's been since we've done a weekly watch list. But I saw Terrifier too. <laughs> okay. All right, yeah. let's go. So I saw this at a drive-in. Shout out to Menden Twin Drive-in, which had our screen playing Smile slash Terrifier two alongside Black Adam. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to look over and see The Rock doing Black Adam things. <laughs> he doesn't need a box for his lunch. Wait, are the screens literally side by side? So there's one screen and then like in a separate area, there's another screen. Oh. You can see it through the trees. I, I was going to say, I'd hate to be the people there for Black Adam and then look over and see Terrifier 2. <laughs> <laughs> no, this movie was supr- shockingly good, honestly. It was long, surprisingly yeah. long, but... I, the gore, they gave us throw up bags. They gave us vomit bags in case we had to vomit. I didn't have to vomit. Uh, proud to say that. But <laughs> genuinely, some gross out like gore, though. Uh, There's one scene in particular where it's just like, how long is this going on for? Like, how is this person yeah. not dead? There's no way they haven't died yet. Uh, <laughs> I think that's what kind of takes some of the heaviness out of what's happening for me. Yeah. Just because it's, it's so I mean, over the top. Yeah, it's so absurd. It's like no reasonable person could think that this is actually going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's it's also just they add the absurdity of Art the Clown as a character. Genuinely oh, yeah. funny moments. There's one scene in this movie where I, I was dying laughing, and that's the scene where he's trying on different glasses at, yes. the, at the Halloween <laughs> shop. And it's so bizarre because like you're like, are they imagining he's there? Because like no one's reacting to this guy just like... In like googly eyes, going like <laughs> that's that, that's David Howard Thornton, the man behind Art the Clown. Yeah, Shout so out that's to a him. great job. Uh, it's such a hilarious 
for such a guy who's like a murdering clown who brutally murders people, he is an incredible screen presence. Just has so much like hilarity to a role that shouldn't have any at all. Hundred um, percent. Having seen both Terrifier One and Terrifier Two, I'd say Two takes the bones of One and then does some cool stuff with it, like story wise. I mean, the story isn't the best. No, it's not flawless, but with that. it's serviceable for the type of movie it is. You're not necessarily going to Terrifier Two for an Oscar-winning script. You know what I mean? But um, I did really like Lauren Lavera as sienna the the final girl the main girl i thought she was was fantastic much better than her brother could didn't really like him he he was okay but uh, i do follow her on twitter and i know that her and mike flanagan have been going back and forth on twitter and i apparently mike flanagan really liked her and wants to cast her in some project in the future so that i'm pretty excited to see overall like yeah it you it's not like a recommend to everybody movie, but it, if it, I struggle to think of exactly how to describe the person I would recommend this movie to, it's it's good for a good just absurd gore fest horror movie. Is it as gnarly as they say? It's, it's pretty, pretty gnarly. Yeah, okay. it's absolutely. I'm not. I don't think you'd be a fan, Mike. No. I mean, you might be, but... Okay, interesting. Probably steer clear then. I saw a decision to leave, finally. I've been waiting a while to see this one. This is about an obsessive detective in Busan who investigates the death of a retired man and suspects that man's much younger wife of committing his murder. As the detective investigates her, they develop a complicated romantic relationship, further entangles them when more crimes are committed. This is directed by Park Chan-wook. The Handmaiden, Old Boy, an excellent, excellent, wonderful director written by him and Jong Seo Kyung. This is South Korea's entry to the international feature Oscar, and I, I would say is considered the front runner at the moment. I think a lot of this movie is really brilliant. The central relationship, really fascinating. It's deranged. It only gets more complicated as the movie goes on. I thought a lot about Phantom Thread while watching this. Vicky Crepes and Daniel Day-Lewis's like complicated, messed up romance in this. It delves into like attraction and like why are we attracted to certain things, even though they, you know, they are destructive to us. Uh, you could even do like a fatal attraction kind of kind of comparison here. Uh, Parquet Il and Tang Wei are excellent in this. They're they're very expressive while being hard to read at the same time, which I think is a very difficult thing to accomplish as an actor. Unfortunately, I don't think this movie is the best version of this story. It's messy in a lot of spots. It's two hours and 20 minutes. It felt like it was four hours, and I'm not sure. Like, it just kept going and going and going and going, and I was enjoying it for the most part, but it it just felt like it dragged a bit. You know, it, that may be the point because there is kind of like a a never-ending investigation to the movie. I still liked it. I didn't love it as much as I expected to. And the other one I watched is My Father's Dragon on Netflix. I'm curious, did either of you guys hear about this movie? I didn't think so, unfortunately. They I didn't... heard about my dragon's father. 
That's funny. Uh, yeah, I don't know what's up been up with Netflix and promoting their animated movies. I, everybody go watch The Sea Beast right now. But My Father's Dragon, this is about a boy who moves in with a struggling single mother. They move into the city. They get further and further into debt. He attempts to run away, and then he stumbles upon a floating island where he has to help a dragon keep everyone on the island from sinking. This is the newest one from Cartoon Saloon, which is an outstanding animation production company. They did The Secret of Kells, Song of the Sea, The Breadwinner. Most recently, they did Wolf Walkers, which I thought was incredible. This is directed by Nora Toomey, who previously co-directed The Secret of Kells and directed The Breadwinner. And written by Meg Lefav, who co-wrote Inside Out. She wrote The Good Dinosaur. I think she's going to be writing Inside Out 2, which uh, we're going to have to have a discussion about the state of Pixar at some point. Did you guys see the trailer for Elemental? I did not. I, it's just, it seems like they've exhausted every like Pixar-y idea that they could have. You know what I mean? Now it's it's like oh we we personified or we anthropomorphized uh, souls. Now we did it with feelings. We did it with toys. Now we're gonna do it with elements. And like let's I'm I'm the biggest Pixar fan in the world, and I'm gonna withhold judgment until I see the movie. But it was a little like almost like caricature-ish of their own brand. You know what I just thought of while you were saying all that? What what if Pixar did like a Star Wars based movie? With a bunch of, I mean, some droids are already kind of anthropomorphized, but like Star Wars droids, but like in a Pixar style. Sounds like, more like a Lord and Miller production. Maybe. Yeah. I think they would be good for that. Pixar would be good too. Well, yeah, I guess you would keep it all in the family, but um, I think Lord Miller would be really great at that. But anyway, this, uh, My Father's Dragon, it's based on the book by Ruth Stiles Gannett. I like this one. I really like certain aspects of it without without really loving the whole thing. I don't think it's Cartoon Saloon's best output. Like always, though, the animation from them is amazing. The way, like, even just, like, rain falls off rooftops, the way they did characters' teeth different. The story is pretty funny. It's thrilling. It's, it's surprisingly complicated in a few different layered ways. It gets at what adults have to do when they're feeling scared, but they can't show it to a child because they have to be the one in charge and encouraging the child. The main character has a really convincing journey surrounding that idea. Great voice cast, Jacob Tremblay, Gatton Matar- Matt, do you guys know how to say his name? Matarazzo. Yeah. Matarazzo. And uh, Golshifte Farahani. Really good. Uh, I think it's another win for the company. I like the movie. So, Matt, back to you. This one was mentioned on the show in a previous weekly watch list. I think, I know you mentioned it, Tyler. I can't remember if you saw it, Mike. See how they run? I did see that, yeah. Uh, that didn't sound very enthusiastic. Did you it's not? It's good. I don't remember. You didn't like it? It's good. It's not great. That's kind of what I thought, too. I was liking it. I thought it was good. But then I saw Glass Onion, which I'll talk about later, which completely blows this one out of the water. Yeah. All that said, though, this is a very solid whodunit. It surrounds the murder of a film director who's slated to adapt Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap from a play to a film. Mm -hmm. Featuring a solid, albeit brief, performance from Adrian Brody. He was so good. He was really good for he was the best the time part, he was actually. there. You thought so? I, I, I loved thought so, yeah. 
Nah, I, I, I just, I was captivated by Sam Rockwell and Sir Ronan, like their dynamic. I thought they were fun. I like them too. I just, it just didn't get all the way there for me. The rest of the characters did feel kind of hollow and flat for what they should, you know, if they weren't all as well written as a Ryan Johnson ensemble cast, but they were, they were fine. It's a, it's a solid, nice way to spend like an hour and a half watching a fun whodunit movie. Yeah, my energy was kind of waning by the end of it. I did see it in a theater. I even like David O'Yellow gives a very good performance of like a mediocre character in the movie. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah I thought great. it got a little too quippy at times. That's the biggest gripe I had. Like not all of the humor landed for me. Yeah, was... I just didn't buy any of the third acts either. Yeah. But overall, I still recommend it if you, like I said, if you're a fan of the genre or really the subgenre of like a whodunit mystery, it's it's fun. Yeah, it's on HBO Max. Tyler, you got anything else? I don't. All right, so we're going to head to me. I still have a few things left. I watched VHS 2. Mm. This is from 2013. This is the second in the found footage videotape series. I spoke about the first one a few weeks ago. I like the first one. I didn't love it, but I... I loved enough of the creativity to get excited for the rest of the series. This second one, it has like a frame story of two investigators. They go looking for somebody's missing son. They go into his house and they find a bunch of computer screens and a bunch of tapes. And that's how we watch the tapes. This was so bad <laughs> that it killed any desire that I had to watch the rest of the movies. Well, let me tell you, the one right after this one, VHS Viral, I couldn't finish. Yeah. Oh, well, oh boy. It's just gross. It's ridiculous. It's dull. The stories are just not well constructed or interesting. There was one moment early on that was so manufactured for a girl to take her shirt off that I was like, this is just like disgusting. Like, are you talking I, about it, the eye scene? The first segment? The eye scene. And that's like, a, so the concept of that one, which I thought was good, was that there's like, it's a guy who is at an experimental medical place and they're putting a camera eyeball into his socket so that the doctors can see whatever he sees. Great idea. And then there's like, I, like it was, it was just terrible. And like all the stuff was bad. The zombies one I hated. Um, I like the zombies one. It was honestly. just boring I thought it was tedious. clever. It was just tedious. I thought it was pretty clever. Um, the... The sleepover one was awful. Um, the the like oh. cult one. I thought the cult one like had some intrigue to it, and then it was like, eh, this is okay. I um I I actually repressed the sleepover one from my it was memory. Awful. I I hated that. I forgot. I forgot that that existed. I guess I forgot a lot about this movie. But yeah, I hate this movie because of that segment. That and it the, was especially the ending. The end. Well. Yeah, you warned me about that, and then when I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah. Um, that one really takes it to the edge of, like, fa you know, found footage, you always get some shaky cam, you never really know what's going on. That one took it to the extreme of, like, I'm just looking at, like, visual vomit right here. Like, I don't, I, I don't know what this is. So VHS 2, really bad. I also watched The Wonder. This is on Netflix. 
In the 1800s, an English nurse is sent to rural Ireland to watch over a girl whose family claims she has survived without food for four months. Directed by Sebastian Lelio, who directed A Fantastic Woman, which won Best Foreign Language Film back when it was called that a few years ago at the Oscars. It was written by him, Alice Birch, and Emma Donoghue. Emma Donoghue was based on her book. She also wrote the novel Room, if you guys remember that one, and the movie adaptation. Right? She was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Brie Larson won Best Actress for that. Seems like a million years ago when Brie Larson was up for Academy Awards. I mean, I, you know, yeah. she's doing fine stuff now. That just seems like forever ago. I thought Jacob Tremblay was insufferable in that movie. Really? Hmm. He was good in My Father's Dragon. That's a conversation for another day. I think he's re- I think he's talented. I won't I, speak on that, though. I liked him in Doctor Sleep. Yeah, he was good in that. I don't love that movie, though. Uh, this was based, like I said, on the book The Wonder, which I read. I didn't really love the book. It's an interesting story that I think is stretched a bit thin in novel form. And unfortunately, I think the movie has a similar issue. It's a good movie. It's not great. The story can't quite hold the hour and 40 minute runtime. I will warn anyone who may want to watch it, and I don't mean this to spoil. I just want them to say, like, this builds up, the story builds up to, like, a real bummer of a revelation. And the only reason I say that is because I think some people might find it very upsetting. And, you know, so if you don't want that, then don't watch the movie. It gets a bit better by the end, and it has a really fascinating resolution to it. The ending sets up a future story that I'd rather watch than the movie that I just saw, if that makes sense. Like, they they let my imagination think of a more fun story than this. Florence Pugh is good in it. Um, Keela Lord Cassidy, as, as the girl who is supposedly surviving without food, she pulls off some tough scenes. She was great. I was very impressed by her. It's, it has a really cool, almost like sci-fi-like score by Matthew Herbert. So that was interesting. Has these bookends where it shows you the movie set of The Wonder and had a message of if you're going to watch something, experience something, you should buy into it because it matters, which I thought was cool. I also think it was a bit of a trick just to like, you know, because novel adaptations always like just use voiceover to give you the backstory. I thought this was just kind of a trick to like get past that. It, it was good. I, I will not watch it again. So if you're interested, I say maybe check it out. But with that, with that caveat, Matt, have you got anything else? So you're saying it showed the set kind of like in a meta sense exactly yeah it you know i'm loving the flow of this episode because i have another movie that uses that technique next let's hear it um but first of all i just want to talk about what this movie is about it's called stuts okay it is a feature film from jonah hill and it's basically like a, a documentary i guess is what is classified as on netflix you can find it on netflix highly recommend go watch it it's it's fantastic it's very powerful and moving so it's from jonah hill and it's about his therapist phil stutz and his methods that helped jonah through some really rough times over the last several years and so like first and foremost and jonah hill says this numerous times throughout the film it's a movie about 
Stutz. It's not a movie about anything but him. But as we start to learn more about Stutz and his life and how he came to be in the position that he's in as a therapist and as we learn about his methods and his backstory, we really get a lot about the special bond that he has with Jonah and Jonah has with him. I, there's not really a lot to spoil per se, but I do think if you go in and let the story play out naturally, it's probably more rewarding. So I'm going to leave out some of the, some of the finer details. Um, but getting back to the point of the meta-ness of it. So it starts out, it looks like it's just them filming across from each other in Stutz's office, but then like halfway through, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but Jonah kind of metaphorically pulls the curtain back and shows like the green screen that they're like filming all this documentary, not from the office, but from like a sound stage, like a real movie. Mm. And it, he uses that as kind of a jumping off point about like, like it, it kind of makes it it it's a serious movie and it, it's a you know a very serious discussion about mental health and lives and there's there's just a, well there's just a lot of layers to it but i think uh you know pulling back the curtain a little bit really kind of makes it seem more down to earth and accessible to folks at least i think that was the the goal of it um it's just just really fantastic and it, it it does have a nice touch of a bit of wit and humor with some of the dialogue it's not all super serious like they they're able to laugh and joke with each other mm-hmm. you know stutz is you know kind of foul mouthed and jonah and they're like going back and forth like talking about telling people to fuck off and you know um it's just it's a very touching and moving film it's just a very good sort of soul-nurturing film, and I, I recommend it to just about anyone. Very nice. What I have next, so I, I think about this sometimes, and I really like when this happens, when you get director double features in a single year, right? So this year we had Ty West with X and Pearl. Last year we had Ridley Scott with The Last Duel and House of Gucci. I'm about to present to you a double feature of Claire Denis, who is the French filmmaker. Maybe people saw High Life with Robert Pattinson a few years ago. She's a really cool filmmaker. Uh, And the first one I'm going to talk about is Both Sides of the Blade. That was the English title. Vec et Moi, El Chandemont was the French title. It's a movie about a husband and a wife whose pretty happy life is challenged when the wife's former lover offers the husband to be a partner in a business venture. Is written by her and Christine Angot, who is a prolific novelist and playwright. I really enjoyed this movie. I love the concept of this movie. There's a lot of tension here surrounding past feelings that threaten to interrupt a current life, which I think makes for great drama. Juliette Binoche and Vincent Lindon are really great. Do you remember where Vincent Lindon was from previously, oh, yeah. Tyler? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what is he from? Titan. Oh, yes. I forgot that. Yes. <laughs> He was the that like dad in quotes in T10. <laughs> yes, uh, I'm surprised you didn't remember movie. him. 
I forgot that. He's was so his name. good. <laughs> yeah, they're both really great. I believe both of them completely. Their characters are somewhat cryptic. Again, I don't think this is the best version of this story. It plays a bit more like an episode of TV drama than a complete movie. I don't mean that to disparage it in any way. It's not like, oh, movie's better than TV or whatever. I was yelling at the TV, so it was getting some sort of reaction by me. By the end, it felt a, a little bit underdone by the end. I think this story could be the basis of a fantastic movie, and this one is good but not the best. However, I did like it a lot more than the other movie that she released this year, Stars at Noon, which is on Hulu. This is about an American journalist. She's stuck in Nicaragua during COVID, begins a romance with an Englishman whose mission in the country is a bit of a mystery. This was when it was written by her, Leah Misius, and Andrew Litvek, based on the book by Dennis Johnson, a good author, wrote Jesus' Son, amongst other things. This, here's the simplest I can put the plot is what, well, what I just said was the simplest I can put the plot, right? Journalist who's stuck in Nicaragua begins a romance. The rest of the movie is nearly incomprehensible. It feels like it's gone forever. It's two hours and 15 minutes. It's like a slog of all slogs. It just meanders, but not even in a fun or crazy way. Just to give you an idea of how incomprehensible it is, there's not even a full plot description on Wikipedia about this. So the people over there just gave up watching this movie. Because like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. There Wikipedia couple... couldn't even finish this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are a couple of moments, like there's a virtual call between Margaret Qualley, who's the journalist, and John C. Riley, who's like, I think the editor of a magazine that she wrote for a couple of times. And that was fun because it's John C. Riley. But that's three minutes out of this incredibly long movie. Margaret Qualley, who I think is a good performer, is giving one of the stranger performances I've seen in a while. I don't know what she's doing. I don't know who her character is or like the way that she's going to deliver a line from one one scene to the next it was just like it was very off-putting joe alwyn who plays the mysterious man i haven't seen him a lot in movies he seems like a competent actor but this screenplay is so cryptic i don't know what either of them were saying i bought the circumstances of their romance i didn't buy their romance whatsoever this is a movie i'm tempted to say it's bad but i don't take joy in saying that it's bad and also, I think it's more that I just wasn't on the movie's wavelength, or personally, that I just didn't put enough thought into it, and I just don't really care to be on its wavelength. There, there was a cool score done by Tinder Sticks, who was an English band, which was very good. It was very, like... Wait, you're, you're not a fan? <laughs> it's a dumb name. Sorry. Tinder Sticks? Tinder Sticks. I, I mean, it makes sense. Would have been a better before. score to have Randy Newman. <laughs> no, he was too big. What about Bumble Logs? Listen, <laughs> Tinder meant something else before the app. It's just a word that they. Or it could have been plenty of fish sticks. That would have worked. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see myself out. No, that was great. That was good stuff. Uh, yeah, the the score. It's it's good. It's very like urban noir, night in the city kind of music that. It could have been like a knockout score in a better movie or could have been used to better effect. Uh, plenty of fish sticks. That's the new name of our pod. Matt, what else you got? 
So at what part in that movie did Sherman fall in love with Will's mom? I, I don't know because I was had it on and didn't know what was happening the entire time. So I couldn't tell you. Oh, hell no. Yeah. R.I.P. to Oh Hell No. That was one of my most anticipated movies of the year. We're very sad about Oh Hell No. They told COVID. COVID ruined Oh Hell No. But yeah, they they told Ice Cube he needed to get vaccinated. He goes, Oh Hell No. Yeah, they couldn't do the movie. (laughs) So upset. Okay, so do you have any more after this one? I have one more. All right. All right, so I have one more. It is easily going to be in my top 10 movies of the year. I loved it a lot. That was Glass Onion. I was lucky enough to catch it while I was in theaters over Thanksgiving. It was like one of the only things I did over Thanksgiving break because I've been kind of dealing with some, some stuff, some personal stuff, but we don't have to get into that right now. Um... Ryan Johnson is back. Benoit Blanc is back, baby. Hang on, that that sounded like I was saying Ryan Johnson was Benoit Blanc. Hang on. <laughs> Sorry, keep it in, keep it in. <laughs> uh, from Ryan Johnson, Benoit Blanc is back, baby. And I would say that Craig is better than ever in this role. I mean, he's only been it one other time, but he was just fantastic it takes everything good and everything i liked about knives out and just approves upon it which i love when a sequel can do that terrifier 2 did that to its own film as well another solid ensemble cast we got katherine Hahn, we got leslie yodem jr we got ed norton janelle monet especially janelle monet she was fantastic jessica henwick we get obviously Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc, which they were all just they were all just fantastic, well written characters. Janelle Monet, like I said, especially Janelle Monet, she was fantastic. And I can't say the the best thing about her character and who she plays, I can't say because it's a spoiler. Mm-hmm. And you got to go into this as blind as possible. So anyway. It the general synopsis is that all of these rich friends, this group of rich friends, are invited to this beautiful island in Greece at a literal place called the Glass Onion that's owned by Ed Norton's character, who's like a tech magnate, which he's basically like an Elon Musk. He's like a caricature of an Elon Musk type in the in like the worst way. So he's just Elon or, Musk? Yeah, basically, he's just, he's just like, he's basically a caricature of Elon Musk. So it's it's impeccable timing that this movie came out with all the crap going on at Twitter. But anyway, I digress. There's just so many layers to the story. There's twists, there's turns. I picked some of them out, but... Like an onion. Like an onion. Like ogres. Um... I, for every clue that I picked up on in this film, there were like two or three more by the end that went right over my head. And I'm so anxious to watch this again. Um, it's just, it's so good. It's like, it's probably one of the best you've done I've ever seen. And I just, I 
recommend Ryan Johnson for I, I hope he just keeps making movies like this of this quality. And I, I said this over on Twitter and I stand by this statement and this thought process. If Ryan Johnson wants to make another Star Wars movie, let him. Let him do it. But it has to be like a galactic based who done it mystery a la knives out a la glass onion. I think that would kill. I think that'd be awesome. Actually, the best whodunit is the song Who Done It by Genesis. No, <laughs> but I exposed that to you for the first time in a car, <laughs> and, and I've we never forgiven never you same. for it. Yeah. Uh, I was just gonna say I also went to see Glass Onion, but ten minutes in, Netflix shut it off and like, no, this movie's only running for three hours. Sorry, <laughs> there's a three-hour window you could see this movie. Get out of here. <laughs> I didn't see it. That was just to throw shade at Netflix. Yeah, I can't wait to watch this. I'm excited. I want to do a full episode if we can fit it in somehow. Because I'm yeah, very I'm curious. Sure There's a lot way. going on in this. And I want to know what you guys think once you see it. Another movie we'll have to do something on. I'm, I saved this one for last. It, it's very momentous. The Fablemans. This is Steven Spielberg's semi-fictionalized autobiographical account of a family middle 20th century centering on sammy a boy who falls in love with filmmaking while witnessing the dissolution of his parents marriage spielberg co-wrote this with tony kushner as his writing partner for a while now there's all this context around the movie about spielberg's career about his life right we've known about his life and sort of the relationship with his parents and his parents splitting up that we've known about for a while and there's the actual movie right the context in the movie i don't know if it's possible to separate the two as far as the context it's really hard not to be emotional if you're someone who movies mean something to it does feel like the culmination of a life of filmmaking from somebody whose work has been so paramount to my whole understanding of how stories work, why movies are important. There is a lot in this movie about getting swept up in seeing a story and having that unlock your real world emotions, which is something that happens to me a lot. Um, as far as the actual movie... It's fantastic. I was very impressed. It, the story of this family's breakdown, so well entangled in this young man's film journey. Michelle Williams and Paul Dano play the parents. They're both really fantastic. The movie does a great job of not displaying their marital troubles as good guy, bad guy. Just as something that happens due to various factors in life. If you're somebody who has witnessed this or experienced this in your family, I felt that it was very authentic, felt very real. It's appropriately slow and carefully developed. Uh, that stuff was my favorite part of the movie. The cast is really excellent. I mentioned the parents. Gabriel LaBelle as Sammy and uh, Matteo Francis DeFord as young Sammy. Really awesome. Uh, Gabriel LaBelle, really believable in all the rocky emotions. He's really fun to watch when he's shooting and directing the home films when he's a young guy. Seth Rogen is really good as his father's friend, who has a really critical role. Julia Butters, Bertie Berea, great as the older and younger version of one of the sisters. Keely Karsten and Alina Brace as the other sister. Judd Hirsch, who I've loved forever, has one scene that he just knocks, like, way out of the park. If he had more in this movie, he'd be getting an Oscar nomination for sure. 
Janusz Kaminski, wonderful cinematography here, really put us in the place of like whatever time period we were in and all the home movie stuff is really awesome. It like really popped, especially transitions from, from one scene, one location to the next. This is a really long movie. Like I said, every single movie that, and Glass Onion is a long movie as well, am I right? It yeah. is, but it doesn't feel like it. I have zero issue with the Fablemans being long. I, you know, because Spielberg, he's been entertaining us for decades. And not that other people haven't, but if after all this time, after all he's done, if he wants to make a, a very long movie about his life, I'm cool with it. It's good. There were certain story elements, particularly later in the movie, I didn't like quite as much. I didn't dislike them, though, and they made sense in the context. This is a wonderful movie, and we'll, we'll be talking about it more. It's going to be a big awards contender. So, you guys have anything else? I just say I just want to say I really enjoyed the flow of this episode. Yeah. It seems like almost every pick has had some solid connection to the other in some way. Like we've had a lot of parallels or not parallels. We've had a lot of like a through lines in this episode between our picks, right? So yes. I present one more. Oh, please. So we started on a movie starring Zoe Kazan, right? Okay, she said. Yeah, what she said. And we ended on a movie featuring Paul Dano. Uh-huh. And those two, I believe, are either married or they are an item. I think they're married in real life. Oh. In case you guys didn't know. Had zero idea. Yeah, they're yeah. partners. So fun fact, um, this was totally intentional, right? No, it was that they totally, were partners. No, it's totally so. <laughs> no. the The flow was totally unintentional, but <laughs> that's interesting. I, that I didn't even fun, know that. Fun way to bring things full circle there. Yeah, hopefully we can draw some more parallels. Um, there, I'm very interested in the best picture lineup this year because um, there are some giant players and then like there's there's a lot of room for a lot of surprises and all that stuff so very very excited for this and we hope that all of you join us for that and it's everything it's, oh i was just gonna say it's kind of sad that like the uh all together all the best picture nominees are gonna like gross like ten dollars in theater play yeah it is sad <laughs> yeah my number one movie of the year, though, Everything Everywhere All at Once just did pretty well at the Gotham Awards. It did. Whatever that means yeah. towards the Oscars. I'm not, I'm not, I'm a bit of a novice when it comes to the award circuit. Hey, if um, Batman likes your movie, you're going to win an Oscar. <laughs> I, um, that's going to be a huge litmus test is, is the Academy ready to embrace a strange movie like that? It's going to be true. fun to see. Yeah. I I just want to say with all these picks to to the folks who are listening even even the ones that we didn't like if if you get even just one of these recommendations and go watch it tell us what you think. I'm sure you were going to say that too Mike, but I just want to hammer that home like we've been going for almost an hour and a half now. We implore you to check some of these movies out and talk to us. What I would really love is for somebody to like yell at us that we're wrong about bones and all. Yes, That's what actually, I would really like. I'm ready to have that discussion. Yeah, 
if you would like to do that, and we hope that you do, uh, shout us out Twitter, Instagram, at ScreensaversPod. Shout us out anytime. If you prefer to write an email, you can write at SilverScreensaversPod at gmail.com. And our Facebook is SilverScreensaversPodcast. Uh, Matt, where can you be found online? You can find me over at MattyXSturds, S-T-U-R-D-Z. That's on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Tyler. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Tyler Sutkus and on Letterboxd at Tyler96. All right, well, that's a big unloading of a weekly watch list, so we will see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. That was like a monthly watch list, but also to our loyal audience, stay down to bones and all. There's before stay down to bone, and then there's after stay down to bone, and the after stay down to bone is just the credits. Nah, we're always down to bone, always have been, always will be. No, don't take that as perverted. (laughs) Silver Screen Savers podcast is hosted and produced by Michael Gallett, Tyler Sukis, and Matt Sturdivant, with additional editing by Matt Sturdivant, intro music by Charles Michelle via Pixabay, logo design by Nathan Seidel. 